Roscoe and Rand Thompson, and you're listening to Foley is Pod. And of course, we couldn't do it without the Hall of Famer himself, the hardcore legend, Mick Foley. Mick, how are you, man? I'm doing great, Conrad. I'm doing great about my mom's house. I apologize in advance if you can hear Outlander uh, season five <laughs> uh, in the back. So I think it's season three in the background, but we're okay, right? We are great. Excited to be here with you. And I love, you know, Mrs. Foley's baby's boy. I mean, look at here. We're actually in her home now. How about that? <laughs> That's right. There's a chalkboard. I, uh, that thing's been on the wall now for over 60, uh, over 50 years. I know that. And up until a couple of years ago, we had a, a, a photo of me and Ox Baker, uh, on that wall, but I guess it was taken down a while back. Man, that's fantastic. I, I, I love that this is the, uh, the childhood home of Mick Foley here, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it is. I, uh, uh, I know we're not supposed to talk about the show that I may or may not be part of, but right. and it's a, if I am part of it, it's a great experience, but it keeps me on the road a lot. Uh, and the, uh, yeah, one of the, uh, I guess, uh, beneficial aspects is that I do get to visit my mom uh, frequently. My travels take me to this part of the country. So uh, we're working. It's not a perfect system here, but we're going to have a great podcast episode nonetheless. Hey, I'm excited about it, and I do think it's really cool that you're at your mom's house. I mean, it feels like she's been a big part of your career, and now, ta-da, here we go, kind of a cameo. And and listen, you are Mr. In Your House, and now you're actually in your mom's house. Look at us. Look at us. Just look at us. That's right. We are still feeling the ramifications of that amazing debut a few weeks ago. Uh can't thank people enough for the reaction to Mr. In Your House. Uh, it's so, it reminds me of the days, my wrestling days, Conrad, in that you come up with an idea, and no matter how far-fetched it might seem, it's even more rewarding when it actually comes about in the ring. And in this case, it wasn't in the ring, but I had this ridiculous idea uh, driving down the road. Uh, Listen to uh, Anita Ward's In Your House uh, dozens and dozens of times. And then saw it become, come to fruition here, right here on Folius Pod. Fantastic piece of business. I, I love there's been so many repurposes of you dancing already. I mean, just one meme after another. It really is the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. And the shout out goes to uh, uh, Casey Hopkins uh, for the editing. And actually, uh, I want to give a shout out to uh, Samantha Mack, who edited uh, the uh, the cookie the cookie video that we saw last week. So uh, she spent a few hours during the pandemic. Uh, I don't know how many hours, but did a nice job on that just so I could have a gift for my son. So appreciate shout outs to Sam Mack and uh, uh, Casey Hopkins for that. Pretty fired up about today's show. Next week, we're going to be talking about Buried Alive. But today we're talking about Beyond the Mat. And yeah. man, this was a big time movie when it first came out. If you were a wrestling fan, this was one of the coolest things we'd ever seen like this. Really one of the first big documentaries of its kind. Of course, a couple of years prior was wrestling with shadows, but man, what, what, what a nice job they did on this. And it just feels like something like this could probably never happen again. Would that be fair to say? Like maybe, maybe without Vince, maybe, but under the Vince McMahon regime, I just don't think we'd ever see anything like this again. Yeah. I mean, Vince was dealing from a hand of weakness at the time. Uh, originally, I believe uh, WCW was going to be uh, cooperating 
And I think uh, Vince did not want to lose out on something that promised to be, uh, you know, of high quality. And uh, he knew that, uh, talking about Vince, Mr. McMahon, knew that director Barry Blaustein wanted to make me one of the features of his documentary. And he gave him unprecedented access that was not without its uh, detractors, you know, in the company. And, uh, you know, as it turned out, Vince was not personally a fan of the uh, the movie, although he did grudgingly admit to Barry that it was a good movie, but said it was not the movie that he would have made. Well, I guess that's not really surprising if you know Vince McMahon. Uh, let's talk about Barry Blaustein, the director of what will become Beyond the Mat. He was best known at the time as a writer on Saturday Night Live. I think he worked with uh, Eddie Murphy and then went on to work with Eddie on movies like The Nutty Professor, Boomerang, and Coming to America. And he'd been a wrestling fan since childhood. And he also came to know Jesse Ventura pretty well. And uh, Jesse would even shout him out on some of the early WrestleManias back in the day. Wait, did Barry shout out Barry Blaustein or Barry Bloom? I think he was shouting out. I know for sure he mentioned him uh, in a WCW effort, but I think okay. he did in some old WWF ones. I know for sure he he shouted out our, our other Barry, Barry Bloom. That's right. Uh, and it was, and I'm, I'm pretty sure we'll get to this anyway, but it was the two Barrys that I met with simultaneously that uh, got the wheels in motion uh, for my participation in this movie. Let's talk about that. You wrote in your book. Because of his success with Universal Pictures, he'd been able to get the studio to finance his idea for a documentary on the lives of professional wrestlers. That was in 1994. I met him in 1995 when I was in Las Vegas for an independent show. I heard a knock on a hotel door, and when I opened it, I saw a man named Barry Bloom. Uh, With Bloom was another man who was introduced as Blaustein. I had met Bloom when I worked for WCW. He was Jesse Ventura's agent. Blaustein explained he was going to be making a documentary and asked if I would be interested in participating. At the time, Barry was considering me for the former star now wrestling in small towns role. So a lot to unpack here, but I love that the idea that, man, this was percolating before you were even signed with the company. Uh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think documentaries are at their best when they, focus on you know a small group of people three or four i mean a lot of great documentaries focus on one person but barry wanted to tell you know take this little slice of wrestling and uh really uh you know i'm trying to think of a word that works well with the slice thing uh prepare (laughs) it and make it as enjoyable as possible by concentrating on a few central ingredients i think i accomplished that and yeah, so my role was set to be the guy who had had the taste of the big time and was now kind of living off his former fame. And I'm glad things turned around for me, but that was originally uh, that was originally my role in the movie. Talk to me a little bit about Barry Bloom. We know these days, I mean, heck, just a few weeks ago on our show, he was like a guest, right? Our in-studio. <laughs> Him and I, another shout out to his son, Little D. David Bloom, who plays a young Al Yankovic in the uh, Weird Al movie. So amazing to me that that's even a sentence. I can't wait to see that. (laughs) Uh, You did not have a a business relationship with Barry Bloom at the time, right? I only met him a handful of times. Uh, You know, Jesse came in, he introduced uh, the dressing room to uh, his agent, Barry Bloom. Like, we'd never heard those words in wrestling, my agent. Right. Like, there were no agents in wrestling before Barry Bloom. So he was kind of looked at suspiciously by the powers that be, but no question he's done an amazing job 
on behalf of, uh, uh, you know, so many people, myself included. But in that case, I cannot remember if there was a phone call saying I'd like to come up, you know, with a friend of mine or whether it was just a knock on the door. I think that you just read that there was a knock on the door. Yeah. And so I was preparing to wrestle Sabu. And uh, I think we were at it wasn't the, it wasn't the golden nugget or even the silver nugget. I'm not sure what type of alloy it was, but it was uh, down on the depth jar, like copper. <laughs> and we had a, a room that would, you know, fit in with that type of motif, like off, off the strip. And whether it was a phone call or a knock on the door, uh, I'm not sure, but it was Barry Bloom. And uh, with him was Blaustein and uh, thus began uh, the seed that became my role in Beyond the Mat. Did they explain it the way you wrote it in your book? We're looking for a former star who's now wrestling in small towns. I mean, is that the way they pitched it? I cannot tell you for sure whether that was approached on that evening or afternoon, but I did understand uh, that when we started filming, that was, or maybe before we started filming, uh, that was set to be my role. Uh, Yeah, yeah. So that was made clear to me. And I really had... Nothing in the pipeline to indicate that uh, that was not going to be my life. You know, like there was no interest from WWE at that time. uh, And uh, there would not be for at least a few more months. And, um, you know, uh, I didn't think I would ever be accepted back into WCW or else I would have never done the the hardcore and anti-hardcore videos. The Forgive Me Uncle Eric videos that I did. So, yeah, I, I didn't think of myself as being at a dead end because I had the gig in Japan. It wasn't, you know, real lucrative, but it was steady. And, I, you know, I was paying a serious price for that steady income. But uh, I was a guy with two small children and, uh, and a family. And uh, I didn't, uh, I, you know, I, I was pretty sure wrestling was going to be my thing for the foreseeable future. So I did not look at it like a dead end. But. I think the way Barry was viewing it is that it might have been like, I don't know where you go at that point. There was no other uh, viable alternative uh, other than in the United States, other than WCW, WWE and kind of running your independent uh, 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 route into the ground over time. Talk to me a little bit about the rest of the cast. As far as you understood it. I mean, we understand eventually you're not going to be the former star now making small towns. That's ultimately, uh, I say this respectfully going to be Jake Roberts role in the documentary. Uh, were there any other talent that you knew of that were attached? I mean, do they say, Hey, we've got so-and-so or something like that at all? Well, you know, I mean, it focused, if I wasn't in there, there, I don't know if they had a, a big current star lined up. He wanted, he was, he, Barry was going, with the characters that he found the most compelling. And that was uh, Terry Funk, mm-hmm. Jake Roberts, and myself. You know, if you've seen the movie, for those of you who have seen it, you know, there's a cast of, like, you know, maybe at least a dozen other people. New Jack's in there a yeah. little bit. Um, even in the outtakes, you know, Tommy Dreamer off of, you know, off of the Wild Samoan fame. Uh, China's in there with her sister a little bit. Uh, Spike Dudley, mm-hmm. but as far as the the big people involved, it was uh, me, Terry, and Jake. 
you knew that right away. So when they came and pitched you, they told you they already had Jake and they had Terry. I think so. Okay. Yeah, I think so. And I, you know what, Conrad, I was, you know, so serious about being part of this that I thought this movie was going to be like the definitive, um, centerpiece of my career that when it was said and done that this was the thing that was going to stand the test of time that I would be able to show to my children and maybe grandchildren and any fans uh, you know that you know this was what I was doing and who I was and uh, I, I you know I really put my heart into uh, being you know telling as honest a story as I possibly could with it were you uh, comfortable with sort of pulling back the curtain? Was that something that was discussed about what you would reveal or not reveal? At this time, you're still the madman, Cactus Jack, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm the madman, but I'm also a guy uh, looking at his legacy. And I always felt like what we did not see was at least as fascinating and probably more so than we did see. And in the same way that I approached the book with the idea that People would respect it more when they were finished than they would when they started. I did not think it was going to hurt the wrestling. I didn't think it was going to be an expose. I, I did not think it was going to hurt wrestling. And uh, I stand by that all these years later. So at this point, did you know the company, uh, the, the WWF was on board or is that not something that was even worked out at that point? Well, at this point, Conrad, should we just uh, make notice that this could be the finest Christmas shirt ever made? So this is... I mean, that's like... Is that the Coca-Cola Santa Claus right there? It is. Not, I don't know if it's technically a Coca-Cola Santa Claus, but it's... it's Pretty close. Esque, yeah. And it's got... A guy in Nova Scotia made it for me. I love the shirt he made. And so... Uh, uh, I, I forgot I'd even asked him about it. And then I see this thing in the mail and it's a thing of, yeah, it's really beautiful. So shout out to that guy. Uh, so now that we've gotten that out of the way, uh, could you repeat the question? <laughs> sure. Just wanting to know, was the WWF involved when they came to pitch you? Did they mention that? I don't think so. Um, now I don't know why WCW would have been on board if it was me, Jake and, uh, Terry, mm -hmm. I, I probably should see one thing I, I do is, you know, is I don't, I might glance at the notes, but I don't want to mm -hmm. look too thoroughly because I want to give you the most honest and open answers I can without like equivocating them in my mind. So I, I maybe should have checked with Barry to see, who they might have had lined up. I can tell you this, jumping forward a little bit, that when Barry met or talked to Mr. McMahon, I don't know if it was in person or on the phone, uh, we used to do this crazy thing called phone calls back in the, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the, the mid-90s, that when uh, Vince asked Barry who he was interested in, and Barry mentioned me, uh, that Vince was surprised, even though I was part of WWE, at the time of that conversation. And uh, Vince was really, he was intrigued by it, but he did not agree with it. And the guys uh, that he specifically mentioned, Barry Blaustein, that whether, I can't tell you whether he thought they would be better subjects or whether they were going to be bigger stars or maybe both, but it was Ahmed Johnson and Mark Merrow that Vince was really high on at the time. That would not have been nearly the same movie. Mark Merrow, on the record, 
one of the greatest ex wrestlers of all time. Yes. Uh, the time, the uh, things he does with the, you know, the youth talking and all that, just amazing stuff he does, life changing stuff. But I think it's safe to say that his career didn't meet the expectations that Vince had for him when he came into WWE. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Uh, yeah, really a magic to the Johnny B. Bad character that was not duplicated with uh, the wild man character. So since they met with you in 95, did they ever film you at all before you're with WWE or does all the filming happen once you're in the Yeah. Um, when I am walking, <laughs> I'm looking right at the door uh, to the basement, the one where my dad reprimands me. Yep. Because <laughs> the house is kind of cluttered. Uh, my daughter is so young at the time that it was either right before I joined WWE, like two or three months, or very shortly after. I think Barry did, whether he, I think he, he, I can't remember if he brought a crew to Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania or not, but I was uh, Japan and ECW uh, only to the point where my family, my wife picked me up at JFK. We drove to Jet right for this is the way things were, you know, right from t- Tokyo. You land. It's a 14 hour flight, but it's really like a 22 hour trip, if that makes sense, because yeah. you have to go to the airport, you know, go through customs, all that. And so we end up in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, about 22 hours after I left, and the kids were zonked. So they actually stayed in the car while I went and wrestled Sandman and came back. So I was, uh, uh, on board with the film uh, before I got to WWE, and I'm pretty sure that scene where I walk downstairs is pre-WWE, but I cannot be certain. If it was WWE, it was in the very first few months, based on how uh, young Noel was at that time. Well, I know it's going to be hard for me to jog your memory here, but I'm just trying to wrap my head around. Do you have to sit down and say, because I've, I've had conversations with folks who went back to the company when they go meet with them, they say, okay, what all do you have going on right now? And they sort of have a conversation about, okay, you can keep doing this. We want you to honor those dates, but we really don't want you to do so-and-so anymore. So you have to disclose, oh, and I agreed to do this movie. And I guess Vince was okay with it. Or, I mean, if he would have said no, go ahead. The timing did work out where um, my uh, start with the company uh, coincided within a couple months' time of uh barry's agreement with wwe Mm -hmm. you're like me and are increasingly getting more concerned about cybercrime with people stealing your private data and invading your privacy boy have i got a solution for you nord vpn nord vpn is a one-stop shop for all things cybersecurity. it's incredibly easy for me to use with just one click i'm protected I don't have to be a tech genius to use it with my Nord VPN account. I can have up to six devices protected. I no longer have to worry about hackers, malicious sites, and pop-ups for a low monthly price. I have complete peace of mind knowing I'm protected. Maybe you've heard VPNs are great for online protection, but they can slow down your internet speed. Nord VPN is the fastest VPN in the world. And I didn't even notice it's running and I can stream and game online with no buffering or lagging. And NordVPN actually helps give me a consistently reliable internet connection. It's the price of a cup of coffee each month, a small price to pay for premium cybersecurity, and you can access to a vast amount of entertaining content from all over the world. Grab your exclusive NordVPN deal 
by going to nordvpn.com forward slash Foley to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan. Plus four months for free, guys. It's completely risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. That's nordvpn.com forward slash Foley. So there's a, a blurb in April of 96 in The Observer, and this is the first time we hear about this movie as fans. Quote, okay. There's actually been a ton of talk within wrestling, particularly in the last few weeks of a documentary being done by Barry Blaustein on the behind the scenes of pro wrestling. Do you have any friends in the biz or acquaintances, whatever you want to call it, who maybe had concerns about you doing this movie? I mean, in this era, certainly the internet is not where it is now, but we were still uh, protecting the business a little more than we do now. Right. Well, I'm going to go back to my feeling that, uh, you know, you pull back the curtain and it's more fascinating and more res- respectable mm-hmm. than it would be if you did not pull back that curtain. And also, I think, uh, you know, kind of to repeat a point I made a few minutes ago, Vince didn't want to be left behind. Right. Uh, this is going to be the biggest, uh, most mainstream documentary. Wrestling with Shadows was an amazing uh, uh, movie. It, it, I'm sorry. I had to have been part of WWE when that was that uh, scene was first shot because uh, Noel wasn't that young, and because Wrestling with Shadows came out while I was in WWE, and I'm actually a small part of that movie too. So uh, Wrestling with Shadows had not come out when Vince agreed to do this, um, but he he wanted in. And uh, I was not I was not concerned. Other people might be, but I did not see this as like an Eddie Mansfield 2020 moment. I saw it as, uh, you know, a a real fan of the business in Barry and a real professional, like paying homage to, uh, you know, what what goes on behind the scenes. It's crazy to think if they don't come in and get permission in 97, there's almost no chance Vince would have agreed to this in 99. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, yeah, I would agree. And I know I jump ahead in subjects, but, uh, you know, um, we can't, or we're going to get into why Vince did not like it, of I course. imagine, yeah. in the next uh, hour or so. But uh, one of the things he felt like is that it, it, it took away from the magic and that by getting people caught up in our... Noel. Can you hear my daughter in the background? Noel's here. How about that? A little run in. Is the car service here, honey? It is. Okay. All right. We might get a Noel Foley cameo because she's <laughs> gonna. You're gonna come here. You're gonna hug Dad right before you go. All right. Okay. Um, yeah. Repeat the question. So we were just um, talking about the timeline and um, how there's no chance Vince would have gone for this in '99. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, the, it's not the Eddie Mansfield uh, reveal. It's uh, yeah, it's something that I felt would uh, would shine a light on my career and uh, and show the hard work and kind of perseverance and trials and tribulations uh, in real life. And Vince felt like that takes away from the magic. And then um, I'm not sure what year Brock and Kurt Angle had their match where Brock, where Brock nearly uh, knocked himself out with the uh, Shooting Star Press. But I thought that that documentary, which was done by WWE, 
was far more depressing and was uh, a bigger, you know, unveiling uh, of behind the scenes than ours was, and that was their own product. Want to have a little cameo here on my, uh, here she is. How about it? Yes. Hi, everybody. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, it's my light. Conrad gave me that. Oh, that's a good one. All right. So you're taking off? Yeah. Let me give you a hugger bugger, okay? Bye. Bye. I love you. Love you, too. Can I have the keys? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There you go. Bye. Goodbye. How about that? A little run-in from Noel Foley here on the show. Keys. See you later. Can I have them, please? Actually, she just needs to get her bag. So let's talk about what all is going on in the movie. You know, Barry's going to film quite a bit. Uh, he's got Terry Funk at the ECW arena. It's ECW's very first pay-per-view, barely legal. We get to see Paul Heyman's fantastic speech before the show, the yeah. iconic scene with Dennis stamp jumping on a trampoline. Uh, we're Talking saying about phone hadn't rang in uh, eight years, but you never knew. <laughs> Gotta be ready for your next match. Um, and then of course the Jake Roberts struggles in the movie. Um, do you know if, if Barry had an angle that, that just didn't work out, you know, there's a lot of ideas sometimes that people workshop and they say, Oh, what about this? And what about that? And then they go shoot it. And then in actuality, well, that didn't wind up how we hoped. And it winds up on the cutting room floor. Did you ever hearing about that? Man, I mean, we stuck with, uh, he stuck with his core group. It wasn't like there was a breakout, uh, role that uh, uh, altered his plans. I mean, perhaps New Jack would, you know, originally had a bigger role. I'm not sure. Um, but I think he stuck with what he had, but he adapted to the real life situations that were going on around us. And there were quite a bit. You know, this is a crazy time to be a wrestling fan. He's got a $500,000 budget here. As you mentioned, he's mostly focusing on three people, yourself, Terry Funk and Jake Roberts, but there is some other stuff that's kind of interesting about new Jack and Jake Roberts has stated that he was informed the film would be used to help children, but it doesn't feel like that ever transpired. And and of course, Blaustein states the opposite. And in response to why he thought Jake made those allegations, Blaustein responded, I don't know why Jake's looking for publicity for himself. Maybe I don't know. He has problems with reality. I wish Jake all of the best. Even to this day, Jake is not a fan of the movie. No. Um, and, you know, DDP thinks it was a hatchet job. And I said, Dallas, he, you know, I don't know if you actually saw Jake using the product. But, um, you know, I mean, cam- a camera's on you. Uh, you're being filmed in an altered state. Yeah. And, uh I think it could be, you know, it could be used to, you children could see this thing and could serve as a cautionary tale, of but course. it was never pitched to me as a project for children. I can't speak as to what Jake's conversation was, but I can assure you that I never felt like it was a movie for children. In the first minute, we can see that it's not, right. you know, it's not geared to a younger audience. Well, I hate that Jake, uh, was not happy with it, but one of the more famous or infamous scenes is a Vince McMahon scene. And for a guy who again, is not going to be happy with his participation. He sure is all over it. And I love the scene. And I think everybody remembers it with him and draws. He's, he, he's going to puke. <laughs> puke. <laughs> Just, it's the most Vince McMahon scene of all time. Is it not? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, he is turning the volume up a little bit, but it was already like at nine and a half. Uh, and, the, you know, Vince was always at nine and a half. And, you know, he turned it up to 11 for uh, for the movie. But uh, that's that's maybe a little over the top in the he's, he's going to puke, but, but not much. And I think anyone who's ever had a meeting with Vince where he's pitching an idea would feel that same way. Just a fantastic scene. Another great scene is you talking to Mike Modest and Tony Jones after they had their tryout matches. There are some young independent rising stars looking for their big break, and they want to show you have a word with them. I really liked, you know, that we got to see what a dark match and a tryout and all of that looks like. Yeah, yeah, and you've got Bruce behind the scenes, right? I mean, it was it was a really good look. I, you know, I mean, there was I think they, uh, you know, asked a couple of wrestlers to look at the monitor. Um, but that's a, it's a really minor detail, right? Um, when you're filming, Hey, would you guys, you know, watch this match? It's not as if you're changing the direction of the, the movie. Talk to me a little bit about, uh, do you remember shooting anything that didn't wind up on the program? Hmm. Wow. We spent a long time. I mean, clearly there's hours of stuff just in my own case, you know what's stunning to me, and I don't think this is reflected in the movie, but uh, the scene where my wife and I are lounging on um, uh, uh, the, the hammock is uh, at the Blaustein house, and that was two days before the Royal Rumble. Oh. I actually went and did an independent appearance like in the Bay Area the day before Mania. I didn't wrestle, but I did a promo, and it was like, the heck was I thinking? Why was I not completely focused on that match? But um, jumping, uh, you know, uh, back six months or five months, I'd actually done the same thing and even worse. And that I had an independent match with Brian Nobbs the day before my over the edge match with Austin and like a 500 mile drive to do after that, especially working with a guy who was like a machine like Stone Cold. But at that time, Conrad, you know, like, and it was only like a thousand bucks for, and not that I'm saying a thousand bucks was a, a small amount of money in uh, 98 or nine, in 98 or even today, but it wasn't something that you should have been doing, especially for a thousand dollars, you know, before a main event in a pay-per-view match. Um, so, but I, yeah, I, I'm sure there was stuff that was lost, but nothing. I mean, you, I, I worked, you know, really hands on on the I Am Santa Claus movie and worked on the editing and trying to tell the story the best you can with the footage that you have. And you cut stuff and then you bring stuff back and you, you ultimately tell the story that you think works best. So I'm sure Barry did that. I didn't have anything to do with the editing uh, uh, or creative on on uh, beyond beyond the mat, but I'm I mean I I know that's how it that's how it's done. You you take the footage you have and you tell the best story you can. Well, they did a great job profiling you. We get to see interviews with your dad and your childhood friend Danny Zucker. We even get to see you sort of play wrestling with uh, Dewey and Noel. Uh, <laughs> Where Dewey gets the color? Yes, yes. Dewey's lip bleeds, and I tell him. To mix it with a saliva so it'll look worse than it is, that's a wrestling family for you. How big of a deal is this to have your dad interviewed, your best friend interviewed? I mean, this is a pretty cool deal, isn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, you know, keep going back to the idea this was going to be, you know, like the defining uh, experience. 
of my career. So I wanted to make it as good as it could be and as authentic as it could be. And, uh, you know, the children, you know, <laughs> I should have had Noelle was like, she was a major star in that movie, right? With yeah. her favorite word of choice, you know, nipples. <laughs> nipples. That was just classic, you know, just uh, great stuff. And who knew that, uh, you know, the kids were going to pop like that on screen. One of the other things in the movie that really stands out is when he plays, he being Blaustein, uh, pronouns mm -hmm. pal, he plays a voicemail from you and you're calling yep. him from the emergency room after King of the Ring 98. Of course, that's the famous Hell in a Cell moment. We're going to talk a lot about that next year, but the voicemail being played here in hindsight, what were you thinking? Why? I mean, obviously, I don't know. Were you able to think? Well, do you even remember making the call? Well, I, first of all, I don't know why I would be calling Barry. From, yeah. I guess, you know, we were pretty good friends by that point. And Barry uh, and I are still in, you know, still in touch. Uh, Barry came to my show in L.A. in June. And uh, you know, I consider him to be one of my best friends. Uh, so it is, it is, uh, no, I don't know if it's odd to, uh, you know, develop a you know, great friendship. Usually as soon as a project is done, boom, that friendship it's kind of over, you know, uh, case in point, not to be a name dropper, but uh, Noel and I just watched the last two episodes of the most recent uh, Cobra Kai. Mm -hmm. um, I said, Mom, you're going to be on camera. There's Mrs. Foley. Oh, all right. Mom, morning. You're on my podcast. <laughs> That's fantastic. This is my favorite show. <laughs> a cameo from... Mrs. Foley herself. Um, so <laughs> what was I just saying? Well, we were talking about how you just finished the last two episodes of Cobra Kai. With yeah. Them. Yeah. Um, and so I had done a, a sizzle reel, which is a, you know, a cheaper version of a pilot. That's the way people do it now because you don't want to waste, you know, it, take, it costs uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars, I'd say, to do a pilot where it costs um, a fraction of that to do a sizzle uh a sizzle reel for uh, for a, in in lieu of a pilot, and I did one with uh, Martin Cove, uh, two thousand six, two thousand seven, and yet when I saw him again at a convention, like he had no idea who I was. Oh wow! Um, so it's you, you think you have this uh, friendship because or you know relationship because you've done twenty five takes together and you've laughed and experienced some cool things, but it doesn't usually amount to much. I know that obviously there are actors who are great friends and collaborate all the time, but you'd think the Blaustein thing would be boom, done, and on to the next thing, um, and it hasn't been. So he has gone on to be uh, one of my best friends, and I guess a good enough friend that he would have been among only a couple people that I called. Uh, it was really probably just my wife and Barry. I don't think I uh, made any other phone calls. One thing I think is really interesting, Conrad, is if you go back and watch the movie, I think in general, I sound sharper now than I did then. Like, I think you can see that I'm slurring my words just a little bit, even before the cell match. Uh, and so I am, when I watch that, I think, man, I, 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 it's, I'm not saying it was like in line with, uh, there's a documentary on Muhammad Ali when he was fighting Larry Holmes. And it was so clear in hindsight that he was struggling with his cognitive skills. 
And I won't, you know, I was a long way from that, but I did see a little bit of slurring because I was probably, uh, with the knowledge we have now about brain injuries, probably getting a small brain injuries pretty regularly without knowing it at that time. Let's, uh, let's talk about the uncomfortableness of the moment. I mean, this is a, this is a big conversation these days back then in 1998, we didn't really know what we know now, but there's pretty heavy stuff here with you talking to your wife and she doesn't want you to do this anymore. And you just put yourself through some, I mean, we've never seen the violence and the spectacle that we had seen from that match. And now you're sort of sharing all of those private moments with the world. Yeah. Any regrets about doing that all these years later or no? No, no. I mean, you know, one, I regret when I wrote the, you know, this should just give you a, for the sake of comparison, I do regret that I published my Santa memoir because it had so many private things in there. And that's why when we showcased or took a, a shot of footage of the memoir I wrote for my family, I knew when I wrote this last one, I was not going to publish it. It was just something for the family and just 25 copies available. So I do know what it's like, how it feels to reflect on something and wish I hadn't shared. Uh, And I do feel that way about the Santa memoir, but I do not feel that way about beyond the mat. Like, uh, like I said, my intention was to, if it was, if Barry was serving up a slice of the wrestling uh, pie, it was going to be, uh, you know, a really most authentic and uh, top-notch ingredients. And I want people to, uh, whether they savored it or found it disagreeable, I wanted it to be um, as authentic a recipe as possible. And with that, I feel like I'm done with my cooking metaphors. I do want to ask, you know, since you don't have any regrets about sharing your real life and your family and the fallout from that match, did the company have any concerns about you sharing? Well, let me say, I mean, I regret, <laughs> I regret that, uh, the match got out of hand. Right. That's, you know, in front of my children were, if not out of hand, it went much further than I thought it was going to go. And we'll, I imagine we'll discuss that in detail. I regret that I did not think it was strange to have a doctor stitching me up in front of my children. Um, But, you know, to use the John Candy phraseology uh, from Home Alone, where he was talking about being left, uh, leaving his kid in a funeral parlor. He goes, yeah, kids are resilient. A little guy came around and started talking (laughs) in a few weeks. My kids are actually fine by the time I saw them. And that's uh, that's a big reason why Barry made a separate trip to Florida, because he did not want he felt like viewers seeing that scene without the context of me view, you know, looking through my own children's eyes at it would give people an unfair sense of who I was as a father. And he didn't think that was fair. And that's why he came uh, to. We was living on the Florida pan and on the in the Florida pan Florida Panhandle in Navarre, Florida. At that time, and they made a trip which wasn't cheap out to Florida 
uh, essentially, so he could show me the footage uh, because he did not want the movie to reflect on me badly as a parent because he did not think that would be accurate. You wrote in your book uh, that you were sort of feeding Barry information on when he should be around to film. Is this part of your strategy to make sure that this is like a document of your oh, career? There's a beautiful deer in the Foley front lawn. This thing is majestic. Okay. Um, well, <laughs> you, you know, like uh, who knew that when we started this thing um, where I was supposed to be, oh, two deer. Oh, man, it's really special out there. Um, sorry. Um, to think that I was going to be the guy portrayed as the, as the wrestler that a taste of the big time was now back on the, the circuit, living off his fame to jump forward and say, I'm going to be, <laughs> I'm going to be wrestling, uh, as the WWE champion against the guy who would go on to become the biggest star in the world. Like that wouldn't even be in the, you know, that would be written off if it was Hollywood is not being believable enough. Um, and so it just made sense. I'm coming to a pay-per-view. I'm headlining a pay-per-view. Um, we're in Los Angeles. It just made sense um, to have Barry there. I, I mean, I knew if I was feeding him anything. And even then, I didn't talk in definitives uh, about the behind-the-scenes uh, goings-on. So I think I told him there was a pretty good chance that I would no longer be champion after Anaheim. And that, in my opinion, I thought that they should be on hand, which they probably would have anyway. You wrote this. I had told him earlier that I had reason to believe I would be leaving California without the belt. That's talking about rumble 99. Okay. And when he found out my kids were coming, he decided to be at the show with his crew. I told him I was planning something memorable, but didn't go into details. Uh, I had no idea just how memorable it would be. And again, we're going to talk about that in the future. But you've got him there filming your whole family. Looking back, you got to maybe wish you had that one to do over again. Was the company upset about that piece too? Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I've said kind of jokingly, if you're going to have a worst moment as a dad, it might as well be on film. Wow. Um, The match, it got away from us. Um the original plan, and this is something I alluded to, I think, in our first, maybe our first or second podcast, because I wanted people to know, yeah, I am going to be really honest on this podcast. And so this is something that I did not even talk about um, in the book or anywhere else until I divulged that info um, on your show. Um, that it, the original finish was going to be uh, me looking out into the crowd seeing the concern and, you know, I thought fear in my children's eyes. Um, and I was going to quit so they would not have to suffer through any more of that. And my main concern was that they would not look concerned mm-hmm. because they thought that I was <laughs> unstoppable and also that I was just playing. So there is that scene where uh, The Rock, you know, he, he'd seen the kids. I don't think he was meeting them. And, uh, you know, Dewey especially, he idolized The Rock, and The Rock has to talk with them about how, you know, he would never do anything to hurt their dad. And so I thought, we're good on that front. You know, if anything, I was concerned they were not going to register register fear. Right. And it would be a flop. But then, as uh, I spoke about, um, we found out that the USA executives were going to be there. Uh, they did not want that finish. And I told Russo on the phone, I was like, oh, man, I'm already, 
I'm already busted open, which I was not. Um, and I do regret that I, uh, you know, looking back on it, that was the one thing I said, I already had a, a wound mm-hmm. and I didn't describe how I got it, but essentially I got off the phone with Russo about 10 seconds after telling him I did have a pre-existing wound and I created one in a hurry that was larger than it should have been or I was intending to be. But, um, man, I was, you know, as a guy did a lot of visualization and that I didn't see how we could arrive at that finish without that head wound. And so I did create one immediately. So there's a shocking moment right here, right? uh, It's crazy to think about, dude, the the links (laughs) you went to entertain us. The nights are getting longer, but the breeze isn't the only thing that's getting stiff. Come on. You know the deal. Today's episode and all of our episodes are sponsored by Blue Chew. Guys, we all know that confidence can take you very far in life. That's especially true in the bedroom, especially when it comes time to step up to the plate. That's where Blue Chew comes in. You might even call it a hot tag for your wiener. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as both Viagra and Cialis, but in chewable tablets and at a fraction of the cost. You can take these dudes anytime, day or night. So you can plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. Now, the process is simple. You sign up at bluechew.com. You consult with one of their licensed medical providers. And once you're approved, well, you'll receive your prescription within days. Now, here's the best part. It's all done online. That means no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, no waiting in line at the pharmacy. Bluetooth tablets are made in the USA, prepared and shipped directly to your door, all in a discreet package. But there won't be anything discreet about your package. Come on now. If you could benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, chew it and do it. Have better sex, guys. We've got a special deal for our listeners right now. Try Blue Chew free when you use our promo code Foley at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's BlueChew.com. The promo code is Foley to receive your very first month for free. Visit BlueChew.com for more details and important safety information. And we thank Blue Chew for sponsoring the podcast. But the way this match is shot, I mean, the movie kind of ends with that Rumble 99 match with The Rock and you know, you got your family there and there's the whole rock piece. And we're going to talk about the match a lot in the future, but the way it's shot here in the movie, they're playing stand by me. There's clips of the action. And then it cuts to clips of the kid and it goes back and forth and the violence just escalates. It really does feel like a fitting in to a professional wrestling movie. But then we get the backstage footage of Colette telling you, that you can't take much more of this. Noel's then pointing out that it's a big boo-boo. You're trying to downplay it all. But it's, man, what a great scene. Uh, it, but- look, again, I, I deserve blame for thinking, for devising the angle that, you know, would revolve around my children registering fear, which they don't know how to do. Uh, you know, they, I mean, they were genuinely terrified when it rolled around and I realized, you know, it was after the fact that it was a bad idea, but I think I wrote about this in more detail in Foley is good saying like matches are at their best when the characters stop portraying roles and become those roles. Yes. But maybe it's not the best time to become those characters when uh, one guy's got his hands cupped behind his back and the other guy who will go on to be the biggest star in the world 
as a powerful human being at my request is really bringing it with everything he had. And I also did not recognize that when your hands are cuffed, your body loses its ability to give it all, which isn't saying that it would not have hurt. Uh, anyway, because chair shots always do, and it's not excusing the gratuitous nature of the chair shots. But I'm telling you that it hurt worse than anything outside of that elbow that I dropped on Ron Simmons and tore my abdominal muscle. It was among the worst things I'd ever felt, like a bolt of lightning going through uh, my entire body. Just because I think if anyone at home is like, okay, I've got my hands in front of me. Now let me put them behind. Wow, I could see how that would alter the body's ability to have any type of, you know, cushioning mechanism at hand. When Barry comes to your house and shows you the footage of this match, and more importantly, the footage of your family, um, how does that feel? I know that sounds crazy, but to go back and see yourself looking at it, I mean, I'm sure you could see... Boy, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm putting my family through a lot. And in the back of your mind, you got to be thinking Vince is not going to like this at all. Right. <laughs> I don't know what I was. I don't know what I was thinking. By the way, the reason I, I blink, especially my right eye, I believe is tied to the hard ways I took over the years. Um, so I know if people are focusing on it, I do blink that eye a lot. And whenever I, I rub it, it's because I'm blinking behind my palm. I got kind of insatiable desire to blink sometimes. Um, So there's fallout from the things we do physically and emotionally. In this case, emotionally, yeah, I was really devastated when Barry showed me that footage because the thing I took the most pride in the world, and I'm saying this the day after I listened to The Rock on CNN talk about how the role he's proudest of and his first priority is making sure he is there for his younger children as a dad. So we share that bond. You know, that's the most important thing in the world. And you want to keep your children as safe as you can before they get out in the big wild world. You want to prepare them. I I mean, there are textbooks that would be apparent, but every experience is unique. But in this case, (laughs) doing the dishes. This is the ultimate Foley episode today. <laughs> Getting the full Monty today. We got run-ins. We got deer. It's fantastic. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, it was uh, it was devastating to watch that. I'm glad Barry gave me the chance to react to it because. He, like I said, he felt like it wouldn't. It would have been unfair to me to just see the type of mayhem that was unleashed with my approval. Uh, not to mention the fact that I got stitched up in front of my children. So he wanted me to see because, in fairness, you know, when I got backstage, the children were no, were no longer crying. And my daughter, after discussing taking issue with me saying it was a small boo boo, it's a little boo boo to daddy. That looks like a big boo-boo. But she then, within a minute, goes, I want to wrestle you. And I said, hey, we'll wrestle when I get home. She goes, I want to wrestle you right now. So the kids look to be fine. Right. I have no idea. And a young Brian Gewertz is actually in the background of that scene when my family leaves. Um, 
Uh, yeah, I'm glad Barry gave me that chance. And my reaction, when, uh, man, I said, I feel like an awful father. And at that point, I said, you know, it was true. I said, I don't feel like I've ever been a bad father before. And so I was glad he gave me that opportunity. And it was raw and real. And, um, you know, I'm glad that scene is in the movie. Do you um, give anyone with the company a heads up? about what you've seen that, man, they're, they're going to show my family upset at ringside. Just want to give you guys a heads up. Or do you even think about asking Barry, Hey man, I might get some heat with the office. Could we clip that out? No. Or does, okay. Oh, no, you know, Barry went back. One, there was one other thing he did. Uh, because he didn't want to show my dad in a negative light. And that's why we have that quick cut from my dad reprimanding me. To say to having the interview with me, so you can see there's a lot of love there in the Foley family. But Barry loved the scene, be, the scene of me being reprimanded for taking the kids down to the basement because it we just it was a it was a point to him that it doesn't matter how big a star you become, like you're always you're always just you know you're your parents' child. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was treated like what? <laughs> no, no, no. There's no way. There's no way. And then we cut directly to my dad saying, "Mick's always been a polite young man." And then I have the line like saying, "Yeah, I'd like to become." I had that nice hair at that time. I was like down to ears, all curly and cascading. Yeah, um, that was a good scene with me and my dad. And I'm glad that he gave me the chance uh, to uh, that he chose to insert that footage in there. The movie comes out November 23rd, 1999. Had you seen an advanced copy before it was released everywhere? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I think the first time I saw it was when, oh man, isn't this crazy? I did. No, I don't know if I saw it live in LA. I don't know if I'm imagining that. I know they did have, uh, it did have a theatrical release because it was in content. It was in consideration to be nominated for an Oscar. And I think it just fell short of that. I really believe if it, I still believe there's an anti pro wrestling bias, you know, in the, in the general world. And I think we're kind of frowned down upon. It's great that the, the, you know, the wrestler with Mickey Rourke, uh, was so highly regarded. And obviously, you know, this is the efforts that rock has made has really, you know, helped us with mainstream exposure, but, yeah, I think uh, I think it was deserving of an Oscar nomination, and it fell just short of that. But you can't get an at least at that time you could not get nominated for an Oscar if you had not had a, a some type of theatrical release. The uh, movie does a premiere Q and A with uh, Dave Meltzer and Terry Funk joining Barry, and uh, this is what Dave wrote in the Observer. There's an aspect of the movie, which is basically the most powerful message of the movie. And that is the toll wrestling often takes on families of the participants. That is very tough for a segment of wrestling fans to watch without having to block it out because it goes against their very credo about hardcore wrestling. And one of the things they enjoy most about wrestling, it's a tough rationalization for people who idolize Mick Foley when they first see him so adamant that the brutality of the finish of his Royal rumble match with the rock, including the 11 straight chair shots would turn more people on than it would turn off in a conversation with Vince McMahon shortly after the match. And then seeing the reaction of his own kids intersped with so much footage of Foley goofing off and having fun with his family. And then the final conclusion that he'd never put his family through that again from Foley's book 
on occasion, he's wrestled with that question as well. And clearly still often does universal had high opinions of the quality of the movie, but wasn't sold on it being marketable. The success of the first weekend helped the movie's cause a great deal. So, I mean, really the whole recap of the thing is about, boy, what is the fallout of a career in professional wrestling for the performers and their families? And that certainly touches on Jake's issues and and what's going Mm -hmm. on with him and a little bit of Terry Funk, but it feels as if really that's a story about you. And you know what, Conrad, I think it depends on who you ask, because I have spoken to many people over the years who felt like Jake was a star of the mm -hmm. movie and other people felt like Terry was. And then other people felt, I guess, like you did or Dave did that. It was, uh, you know, I was in the primary role, but I think that's why it's really valuable to have those three distinct stories because the viewers can make up their own mind, you know, which person connects with them or which story uh, connects with them the most. It's really odd that in The Rock's first movie that yeah, that he was not the star. But I don't think Barry, you know, well, first of all, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't even in the cards. I mean, you know, one even knew who, uh, you know, Dwayne was at that time outside of, uh, you know, football circles. Um, uh, but it is it is really interesting that you're dealing with, you know, three well, I guess I was kind of, what was I, 30, I was 33 at the time. Uh, I mean, you know, it started shooting when I was 31, and I think I was 33 at the time. Of, uh, uh, I'd have to, I'm doing the math in my head, so I'll start do, working on some doodles. But I was born in 65. That came out. That match was uh, beginning in 99. So I think yeah, I was 33 years old. Um. But uh, those were the characters that resonated with Barry the most and uh, the stories. And I know, you know, I got to know Barry's family really well over the years. Um, And those were the stories that he wanted to tell about those three guys. I am curious. Do you recall hearing about anyone turning down an opportunity to be in the movie? Like, not necessarily Eric Bischoff. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I mean, in terms of individual talent like does someone come along like i remember reading or hearing maybe there was a whisper that one of the things vince didn't like about the movie is we saw the undertaker using a payphone and this undead human being or supernatural being probably doesn't have a 1-800 collect membership it's so i get that but do you any talent in particular saying i can't believe you're doing that or, or i don't think paul bearer liked it a lot okay He's not here to speak to that, but uh, I don't know if he was, uh, you know, he was going to be on camera, but I know he was concerned about some of the reveals backstage, um, in particular, you know, payoffs. And I, I know Barry's feeling was, where do people feel like wrestlers don't get paid for what they do? But showing uh, actual money exchanging hands, I guess, you know, didn't sit well with Uncle Paul, but uh, I don't know of anybody. That's not at that time to be offered, you know, a role in something that promised to be of really high quality um, and would treat the business with respect. At least that's the way I saw it from day one. I don't know if any, a lot of guys are turning down that uh, that opportunity. No, I agree. Totally agree. Uh, here's the write up from the observer. The general consensus was it goes without saying Eric Bischoff was an idiot to not allow WCW any presence in the movie. 
WCW wouldn't allow Blaustein to film anything involving the company unless the company had editing power over what aired. McMahon, who was the number two at the time the movie was largely being filmed, cooperated fully. In a weird irony, one of the people featured early on was Darren Trosdorf, and if there is a national release or a television release at some point, the movie could almost have to be updated to talk about his unfortunate accident. Actually, it seems the only person in the business up to this point who doesn't like it was Vince McMahon. It was old Barry Blaustein that he thought it was good, but didn't feel bad about cooperating with it, but he didn't like that there wasn't a happy ending. McMahon then told people within the company who hadn't seen the movie that it was a negative knock on the business that have portrayed the business negatively and that the company would not do anything to help promote it, which explains no mention of it on TV. And also that Mick Foley who stars in it hasn't really been allowed to push it while be while doing the media rounds this past week. So talk to me about that. Do you remember Vince coming to you and saying, all right, I know you're in it, but we're not going to promote it. It was strange. What was the release date? November 22nd, 99, November 23rd, 1999. So my book had come out like uh, uh, five or six weeks earlier, and I was doing – I did a lot of publicity, a lot of publicity on the book. And um, if it was a WWE um, uh, appearance, then uh, the, it wasn't It wasn't mentioned. I know that I did an interview with Diane Sawyer for Good Morning America, and Vince was not happy about that. Uh, I, as soon as I was done with the, as soon as it aired, there was a message, give me a call, it's, damn it. Um, and I constantly felt, I constantly, you know, brought up my point that I did not think it was a downer or I thought it was a sobering dose of reality. I, and again, you know, I wrote a novel that most people thought was depressing and I thought it was, uh, about, you know, hope uh, for the future. So maybe I don't always see things the same way, but I did not feel like it was a downer. Uh, And I think it achieved that goal I had, which was anyone who watched it going in uh, to the experience was going to have more respect for pro wrestling than they did before they started. And so Barry was not just making a movie for wrestling fans, although, you know, we're really... You know, I think I speak for him saying we're really grat- he's really gratified that wrestling fans liked it. But he was making a movie for everybody, whether they were fans or not. And I know that when Al Snow and I uh, were invited to the uh, premiere of Arnold Schwarzenegger's movies End of Days, that there was a group of a couple dozen adults, mostly women, and they were kind of whispering. And then one of them came up and said, uh, we're not wrestling fans, but we were part of the focus group for Universal. And we all think that you're a great father. So that was a takeaway from people who were not wrestling fans. Right. They were really mesmerized by it. And at that time, you know, when the movie came out in 99, the general public thought nothing that happened in wrestling had any semblance of reality to it. So uh, I think that was really surprising. I mean, the reality involved was really surprising to non-fans and I think it was something that wrestling fans could take pride in because it did portray the business as uh, taking a toll uh, physically, for sure, and emotionally. But that's the truth. You know, I mean, it is a tough business on families. And I thought that was accurately reflected. I don't think that makes it sad or depressing. Um, but sometimes the choices that we make as adults are not great choices and they do have uh, ramifications on the people we love.
Guys, I'm so excited to tell you about something that changed my life. Of course, I'm talking about Chili Sleep, but Sleep Me is the new home for Chili Sleep. Now, they're still bringing you the same great sleep that Chili Sleep offered, but under a new name. Sleep Me now makes the coldest and most comfortable sleep systems available. And buddy, I am living proof. I'm more productive than ever. I feel better than ever. I give 100% of the credit to chili sleep. They really do create the environment that meets the body's natural need for lower core temperatures that promotes deeper, more restorative sleep. Now, listen, I might've been like, I don't know, a high tech redneck, but I kind of already knew that I knew to crank down the AC in my house. When I went to bed, I knew to make sure I had a ceiling fan in my bed. Well, you know, above my bed. Here's the thing though. I don't need to like refrigerate and cool off my dining room or my, my kitchen or my office or my closet. No buddy. I needed my bed to be cool. And I used to fuss and fight with the pillows and the covers and kick a leg out. And I had all these little techniques to regulate my body temperature. It wasn't until I discovered chili sleep, which is now sleep me. They make the Uller, the cube and the doc pro system. Now let me explain. I've got the Uller. It's a water-based temperature-controlled mattress topper. It fits over your existing mattress to provide you your ideal sleep temperature. Now, your ideal sleep temperature is different from, well, anyone else's. For instance, in the same bed, my wife likes to sleep a little warmer than I do. We can do that with chili. What's scary? Sleep me. Sleep me allows her side of the bed to be a little warmer than my side. She even has her side automated. She wants to climb into a warm bed, but she wants to cool her off as she sleeps, right? She doesn't want to wake up all hot and sweaty. So it starts warm. It's warm when she climbs in and then it starts to cool her down as the night goes on, but she warms up to wake up. You can automate all of this. It's like a smart thermostat for your bed. Now, don't worry. When I say water-based, bro, it ain't a freaking water bed, okay? But water does have these amazing thermal properties. So if you want your bed warm, well, it heats that water up. You want it cool? Well, it cools that water down. It's fantastic. Either way, what you need to know is Sleep Me helps you get that deep, cold sleep. They're designed to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, give you the confidence and energy you you need to power through your day. I want to brag on their new Doc Pro sleep system. It has two times, two times more cold power than any of their other models. It's whisper quiet. And it has a tubeless mattress pad design that they say allows for five times more cooling contact. I say they say, cause I don't have this. I've got the Uller, but buddy, I'm getting a new Doc Pro sleep system. You had me sold at five times more cooling contact. Count me in. I'm sleeping better than ever. I love chili sleep. I even travel with one. That's right. I have two myself. You need one. You got to just try it. When you invest in this, you will feel better. I'm just telling you, it worked for me and my family. It's hard for us to imagine us well, our lives without it. Head over right now. Sleep.me forward slash Foley. Learn more. Save 20% off the purchase of any new Doc Pro, Cube, or Uller sleep system. This is an offer exclusive for Mick Foley listeners. It's only for a limited time. That's sleep. S L E E P dot me M E slash Foley sleep dot me forward slash Foley to take advantage of our exclusive discounts and wake up feeling refreshed every day. Let's talk about the wide release. It happens March of 2000. At this point, you've already lost your retirement match to triple H. We covered in our very first episode. Check that one out in the archives. Good one. Uh, but Vince goes nuts about this movie going wide. Uh, Meltzer would write this. I think one thing is abundantly clear. Vince McMahon will never allow another independent film producer into the world of the WWF. Like wrestling with shadows, the first independent movie McMahon allowed inside the walls of the company, which also wound up in court. It appears <laughs> beyond the mat and universal studios are headed in the same direction. 
On February 28th, McMahon ordered both UPN and the USA Network to pull all advertising for the movie, which had purchased a heavy advertising campaign starting that night for its March 17th national opening. McMahon's philosophy was believed to have been that nothing would be done by the WWF to promote the movie, but it's now gone much further than that with the rumblings of Universal threatening a restraint of trade lawsuit against the WWFE for pulling the ads at the last minute. Movie ads had begun airing on ECW broadcast three nights earlier. No ads appeared on Nitro on 228. Upon viewing it, we decided that we had no emotional attachment to the film, said Jim Byrne, a WWF vice president. In regards to their advertising in the body of the show, it has been a longstanding policy of the WWF to not allow any advertising of a competitive wrestling product on our television because it could cause confusion in the marketplace. Uh, Mick, let's just time out right there. That's some grade A bullshit for Mr. Byrne, is it not? Yeah, I, I think it is. I don't think it was going to cause any confusion in the marketplace. And this sounds eerily reminiscent, even though it, it came at a later time, but reminiscent now of the way the company felt about the wrestler with Mickey Rourke, which they never mentioned until Mickey Rourke received an Oscar nomination that he became a part of Mania and the, you know, part of the storyline. Uh, so I think if Beyond the Mat had garnered an Oscar nod, they might have felt differently about it. But it was not the movie that Vince would have made. Um, and then, you know, I mean, Vince, he even says we're in the business of making movies. I think he regretted that. He, Vince says, look, it's not out of line or kicking someone when he's down to say that Mr. McMahon is a control freak, right? Yeah, yeah, fair. Like, he controls the minutia of what goes on to the point where other broadcasters that I have met cannot believe that the head of the company is in on the announcer's headphones during the entirety of the broadcast. That's just, like, unheard of for someone to be that hands-on. And so, Vince, I think it bothered him that he did not have control. Like you said, Eric Bischoff wanted editorial control, which you really can't do in a documentary, you know, without losing the uh, uh, authenticity and legitimacy. Um, And I think Vince, he, I know he felt like I should have been paid for it. He did tell me that. And I said, Vince, I don't think you get paid for documentaries. And I've been a handful of them. You don't get paid. Um, you do not, I mean, I have been paid, you know, for WWE projects that air and uh, make the company money. And I think that's right, but this is an independent, uh, documentary and he felt like I should have been paid. And I'm just thinking, uh, but only thinking with a lot of experience that Vince regretted he did not have control over the, the, the final version. Uh, it does come up that you plug the movie on good morning America and it's written in the observer here, quote, McMahon called Blaustein and said that if he was the friend of Foley's that he claimed to be, he should have never let him, even if he wanted to do any publicity for the movie, claiming that he Vince McMahon would ruin the career of any wrestler who had anything positive to say about the film. Byrne said he was unaware that Foley or any wrestler had even been spoken with about doing publicity work or even saying anything positive regarding the movie, but Foley has done media appearances where the interviewers have been told they cannot bring up the subject of the movie. So Mr. Blaustein did not have the best time with Mr. McMahon. Fair to say. (laughs) Yes, it is. It is fair to say. 
And this uh, man, you know, <sighs> you're in the middle of that. You're in a bad spot here. Are you not? Cause on the one hand, you like the project, you like Barry, but making a boatload of cash with Vince. So you're kind of stuck in the middle here no? Yeah. Yeah. And so, but my career, you know, by the time the movie premiered, I was already, I mean, I had already given notice on my career. And the only reason I even, you know, I mean, Vince, when I talked to him in October of 99, you know, um, I was embarrassed by uh, an on-air performance I was on SmackDown. I was glad that it was edited because I fell down a couple times. My knees were in really rough shape. And uh, I was having head injury issues. And uh, and Vince, you know, he shook my hand and said, you've just had your last match. And the only thing that changed matters was that Stone Cold was injured. And I was going to hang in and, uh, you know, be a team player. And it turned out being a team player meant that I got those two really memorable pay-per-view main events uh, with, with Triple H. But it was all happening at a time when I was getting, I won't say unprecedented mainstream uh, attention because Hogan got, you know, far more ahead of that. And then The Rock obviously would go on to get, you know, garner a ton more. But this was a lot of mainstream attention for a book that had hit number one on the New York Times list. And even more importantly, it was like hanging in there on that list for, uh, and, you know, 26 weeks to be on the list for a memoir is is a long time, you know, you, I mean, I don't mean to give like a tutorial on the New York times bestseller list, but a lot of times the book hits and then disappears in one mm-hmm. week or is off within 10, I would say. Um, so for most of the time, so for a memoir to hang in there on the list for 26 weeks means that it's really got some staying power. And I was getting mainstream uh, publicity the likes of which, you know, the company hadn't received in a while. And so if I was asked about the movie, I was not going to run away with it. And I guess I did sign on to do Good Morning America. But I just thought Diane Sawyer is a great journalist and, a you know, a very highly respected journalist. And it didn't even dawn on me that I would not do that interview without checking with the company first. The, uh, the write-up from... The observer here says the other irony is McMahon going to the lengths of banning advertising for the movie on his shows. And it may only serve to create more publicity for the movie in the long run, which would result very likely in a lot of questioning of what exactly McMahon is afraid of. It's believed McMahon's unhappiness with the movie stemmed from the scenes of Foley's children crying hysterically at the finish of the rumble match in 99. Since the company markets so heavily to children. At one point, WWF officials attempted to portray to ABC's 2020 that the footage was staged by Blaustein, and the company has stated in defense of charges that pro wrestling wasn't appropriate for children based on the content that children know the difference between the supposed fake Wiley Coyote violence in pro, pro wrestling and real violence, but the reaction of the children of one of their biggest stars was a strong contradiction, not to mention the movie's theme as the fake violence isn't nearly as fake as most people think. Did you have a specific conversation with Vince about, was it just the happy ending or did he go into details of Mick? I wish we could get this scene cut or that scene cut. This is where I feel really, I'm at odds because this is something I've been thinking about for the last 15 minutes. Um, 
Vince was not comfortable with the scene with Jake okay. discussing his marital issues. Okay. Um, about the women. Yeah, about the women. Okay. And uh, we'll just, I think he said it might have. I, it starts with two women, then women with toys and blah, blah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, and that, in a sense, is, is not dissimilar to, you know, like wrestling in general, that once you throw in, uh, you know, a no-holds-barred match in a cage in a cell, it can be tough to go back to a yes. one-on-one matchup using an arm bar. Yes. Um, so I, that was an issue. Got is it. That it hit a little close to home. I don't think that's – I don't know if that's ever been discussed. I've never discussed it before, and I hate to divulge that. But, I mean, we're doing an in-depth thing, and uh, we appreciate each and every person who tunes in. Yes. And uh, word of mouth is really important. And I think when I, you know, when you and I came to an agreement on this show, it would be that I'd be as honest as I could be. And I don't think it's a secret that Vince has had – issues over the years, yes. you know, Alinda addressed these issues when she was running for a Senate. So it's not like I'm divulging something that's unknown, but Vince had some, has had trouble over the years. He talked about and, it in Playboy. I mean, he did interviews yeah, in Playboy. Yeah. About so, it. I'm, yeah. so I'm just, I'm letting people know that it wasn't just about the magic. It was about uh, a part of that film hitting a little too close to home, I guess, for what he was going through at the time. I got you. Oh, I just I don't want to say it's disingenuous to say it was just about the, that it, it because it was in part about that. And Vince feels wholeheartedly. And I really respect this, that what we do is 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 really is really valuable. And it is about taking people's minds off their everyday problems and transporting them to this magical world where we then get them caught up in our sometimes real life and sometimes fictional problems. Um, but we're not entirely a feel-good project. You know, we make money because people, uh, we cut the money drawing promos that uh, rely on real emotion. And people can tell the difference uh, between real and manufactured emotions. I think that's been really, you know, clearly, you know, investigated, not investigated, but um, looked into and spoken about in depth by the people who bring the characters to life. Um, so it's not disingenuous, but it's not the entire story about why the movie wasn't liked. So I would say, yeah, he did. He felt like it did take away from the magic. That is a definite point. He didn't like the idea that, you know, my children were clearly, uh, traumatized mm-hmm. at the time, but it was also about not having control. It was also about, uh, not being paid. Um, and it was also about, uh, part of that movie hitting a little close to home for his comfort. You know, the thing is, I mean, I don't want to, certainly this was profitable, but it's not this huge bonanza. And and, and that's that's one of the things Barry said to me is that he said, I don't think they realize that documentaries, by and large, don't make money. Right. Don't make a lot of it. I think at that time, uh, Madonna, Truth or Dare was the biggest documentary of all time. And it was a fraction of what a blockbuster would uh, would attain. Uh, you know, I got some fallout from my fellow uh, Santa um, ambassadors for lifting the curtain on the Santa world. And one of them said, like, uh, and I, it was ironic that I was getting threatened <laughs> with physical violence from guys uh, portraying the most peaceful man on the planet. 
Um, but uh, one of them said, I guess it proves you'll do anything for the almighty buck. And I reminisced with, uh, I, I called <laughs> director Tommy Avalone and said, yeah, I, I've tapped into that really lucrative, low budget documentary, <laughs> uh, you know, gold mine. You don't usually make money. The fact that this movie did make money made it unusual. And to go in with a half a million dollar budget is an enormous budget for a documentary film. Um, but it didn't make the kind of money that I think Vince thought it was making. No, that makes sense. Yeah, it totally makes sense. I mean, I guess we should mention when it does open, uh, I think it has 298 theaters. Uh, mm-hmm. it does $950,000, which is $3,188 per screen to be clear. That's the gate. So that's not what the company's making. So this right. is not this huge booming success. Um, mm-hmm. But along the way, man, Vince McMahon's still trying to to stifle this. You know, he's uh, essentially banned any of his television partners from airing the commercials, and and they had advertising booked. And you might wonder, well, why would they allow Vince McMahon to sort of strong arm them? Well, he's in negotiation to re up, and ultimately he's going to make the decision to leave and go to Spike and and all that jazz. But it is fascinating to see. Man, Vince McMahon has this "you're with us or you're against us" mentality, yeah. and he's not afraid to use it. No, yeah, I don't. Th- <laughs> I think that's safe to say. But going back to what you said earlier about how his, uh, <laughs> his I don't want to say animosity, his issues with the film may have helped it. I don't know if it helped it as much as a healthy advertising campaign on WWE would have. But the, I mean, you either want Vince loving this thing or, you know, or having the reaction he did. I think the worst possible thing is, eh, you know, I don't care one way or the other because clearly he did care. Um, yeah, indifference you know, is the way to go. Like that's talked you know. about it. Vince and I talked about this. Cause I, you know, I did have a good relationship with Vince for a, a long time, and we talked about it. Um, and we just, I think we just, in the end, agreed to disagree that it was always something I was going to be proud of and the company to their credit, they let me talk freely about the movie and, in Foley is good and give my honest, uh, opinions. I mean, even jumping forward to the hardcore diaries, when I, 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 ha- I wrote about the scene where Vince was pulling objects out of JR's, uh, you know, um, uh, nether regions that I was looking down at the floor wondering what type of human being I uh, <laughs> I worked for. And one of the lawyers brought it to Vince, and he described it as Vince looking down, and his shoulders began to shake, and he goes, he's wrong. It was funny, but if that's the way he feels, let him write it. And so they gave me that type of latitude, and I was never asked, uh, best of my knowledge, it was made clear to me that they did not like it. I made it clear to them that I did like it. And I do not think they forbid me from talking about it, but they didn't make it easy to get booked to talk about it, if that makes sense. So the tagline becomes the film Vince McMahon doesn't want you to see. And the workaround for marketing the movie, well, since we can't buy from USA directly, we'll go buy market specific. So now they're buying local buys. So no, it's not airing nationally on the USA network, but you could still go directly to those affiliates, those cable affiliates in you know, New York, Chicago, LA, whatever. And they're going to run national ads during WCW and ECW shows, but that's still not without some controversy. You know, we see, uh, 
uh, Jerry Lawler actually go do interviews in Memphis and talk about how Blaustein's a jerk and he's deceived the WWF. And, uh, he presented it as a minor documentary that might premiere on PBS, but instead it's a highly profitable feature film distributed by Lionsgate and financed by Ron Howard. And so the money is definitely part of it. And I'm sure Jerry's yeah. just towing the company line. And I, I really enjoyed uh, a little letter here. This is from Tom Ortenberg, who at the time is the co-president of Lionsgate films. He writes this. I just want to make sure you're aware of the depths to which the WWF is going to suppress this movie. They've sent a cease and desist letter for things that we have every right to do, like use the rocks likeness in our ads. As for our TV spots, after generating and signing contracts on their letterhead more than three weeks in advance, we find out the day of airing that the spots aren't going to run. The WWF wasn't even going to tell us. We were just calling to confirm. They have since persuaded UPN to not allow any advertising whatsoever of our film on their entire network and are pressuring the USA network to do the same. This is the type of censorship and bully tactics that have no place in our society. What is Vince McMahon afraid of that? We show wrestlers as human beings or is that, or is it that he was not allowed to buy into the new movie? So he has set out to destroy it. Do you have any, Listen, at this point, you're on the downhill slope. You, you've lost your retirement match. You think you're done. We know you're not really done, but. Um, <laughs> I thought I was done. You did. But you know you can't go promote the movie. Or, or do you just think this is all in the rear view and it's wrestling nonsense and I don't really care? Or are you still actively talking to Barry and sort of feel like you need to be helpful somehow? I think by that point, you know, it. Um, I think at that point I realized it was out of my hands. Right. Especially when I stopped promoting the, uh, I mean, I did phoner interviews for months to follow and I did 30 appearances. I mean, 30 promotional appearances for a book is man, that's a huge tour. So I was still doing phoners like once or twice a week because I, I was really unusual for a, you know, a athlete or a celebrity of any kind to write their own memoir. And so I was, you know, I thought justifiably proud of it and wanted to talk about it. So I did not shy away from questions if they came. But I wasn't, I, I think by that point I realized the movie had done well and it had made an impact. And people who saw it were touched by it. It was resonating with uh, uh, fans and non-fans alike. And, I, again, this is going back now 20 uh, uh 23 years, right? Or, uh, yeah, 23 years. So I can't remember the timetable exactly, but I, I believe I felt like it was a success and that it did achieve that goal of making people respect wrestling more. And I just always disagreed with Vince's. I mean, I was, I was, Right. I had a book that talked in great depth about the inner workings of wrestling and that accomplished that same goal, which is that people, I mean, I wanted closure on my career and, and the book did that for me. And it turns out that I think the book more than the movie defined uh, my career. And, uh, you know, my career was a bit much, went on to be much bigger and better than it was at the onset of this, uh, the filming of the movie. Um, but I was always proud of it, and I still am. I mean, um, I was not asked to not be proud of it or not to like it, but the company, I guess, 
did make it difficult for me to talk about in a mainstream way. They start promoting it, as I said, as the movie Vince McMahon doesn't want you to see. And of course, that even by itself pisses off Vince McMahon. Oh, wait, let me, let me just let me just state for the record that uh, I was told by uh, a McMahon uh, that Barry wasn't my friend, um, that they were. And yet I've never been invited to the McMahon residence and I've slept over the Blaustein house on many occasions, taking Barry's kids, you know, at that, t- you know, years ago to a uh, theme park. So I-, I will say that on record, Barry Blaustein was a friend, still is a friend. And I'm still waiting for that invitation to the McMahon house that Jericho got. I never, I've never been there. A lot of WWE superstars have been invited to the McMahon house, and I never have. I have a joke that's, there. But, oh. That's an episode right there, Conrad. Yeah. There's probably a lot of people who aren't invited to the McMahon house anymore. <laughs> but I think of the of the guys of my era, you know, well, first, when we talk about being invited to the house. Yeah. Referring to the, um, the adage that, when you have your first meeting with WWE, you can tell where you are slotted in terms of the roster based on where the meeting takes place. So uh, the top tier stars are the people that he felt like would be the top tier stars got their meeting at uh, the residence. The next level got their meeting at the office and then uh, uh, down lower than that they would not even meet with Vince personally. They'd meet with, uh, you know, underlings. So I was kind of in the middle of that, but I think it's safe to say that everyone else, like, uh, who played a major role, like a really major role in that attitude era has been at the residence. And I have not, I could be wrong. I don't know if, I don't know for a fact, it's just an assumption. And, uh, you know, I know what can happen when you assume because I read it on a (laughs) t-shirt. My assumption is that other people of my era were invited and I never was. Listen, man, I know it sounds too good to be true, but I want you to just do me a favor and run on over to SaveWithConrad.com. Get yourself a quick quote. My man, Andy M just left us a five-star review over at ConradReviews.com. And he had this to say. The effort and communication from Josh was above and beyond. We ran into several unexpected hiccups along the way, but Josh kept us informed and kept looking for options to get things done. In the end, we were still able to refinance to a 15 year loan, or we're going to be able to pay it off in 10. And we took enough cash out to pay off our credit cards, my truck loan, and even buy my wife, her very first new vehicle. We're going to save over $500 a month from what we would have been paying without the refinance. We can't thank everyone enough. Now, guys, that right there is a win-win-win situation. Let me explain. Over the last couple of years, your house is probably worth more than ever. Now, what you do with that equity is up to you. And what I'm going to recommend is we do what our man Andy did. Andy took himself from a 30-year loan down to 15 years, but he's planning to pay it off in 10. Now, how can he afford to do that? We got rid of all his credit card debt, just like that. We got rid of his truck loan, and we even got him enough cash to get his wife a new vehicle. The result cheaper monthly payments. How does that happen? How do you get a new car, pay off a truck and get rid of your credit cards and cut years off your loan? You go to savewithconrad.com. We're going to get you cheaper monthly payments. And how's this for starters? No house payments for the next two months. That's right. You can skip your next two payments. You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket. And buddy, if we can't help you save some cash, we won't waste your time. And here's the best part. We don't say no 
They say, not yet, but here's how. I don't care if you were late here or there. Maybe you had a bankruptcy back in the day. Maybe you were late on a credit card. We're going to help you figure out how to get in the situation that your family needs now and long-term. We want to be your mortgage advisor for life at SaveWithConrad.com. Woo Wings, a virtual restaurant concept from the man himself, the nature boy, Ric Flair. Enjoy the legendary flavors and world championship wings by ordering with your Uber Eats or Postmates app. Woo Wings is now open in Nashville, San Antonio, Jacksonville, Florida, as well as Huntsville and Tuscaloosa in Alabama, with many more locations coming soon. Try the only chicken wings worthy of carrying the name of the 16-time world heavyweight champion. Tell them, Nate. Wings! Legendary flavors! World Championship Wings! Woo! Woo Wings! Yeah! Woo Woo! What do you make of uh, the decision to pivot? Since they're not going to let us advertise on WWE programming, now we're going to pivot and we're going to start saying the film or the movie Vince McMahon doesn't want you to see. Is that fair game to you? Yeah, I think so. You know, it's something I heard also about lemons and lemonade yep. and <laughs> chicken salad. Uh, that's what they were, you know, their hand was kind of forced. And I think they brewed up, uh delicious batch of lemonade out of the lemons that they were given. I do want to ask about the criticism that I guess that WWE has because the rock is on the poster and on the cover of the DVD and all that, but it's really not so much about him. I mean, he's in it for sure, but it does feel as if it's mostly about you, Terry and Jake, but yeah, the rock is the biggest star in the world. And there he is. Uh, do you think that's fair game or is that maybe a party (laughs) foul? Uh, oh, yeah, I think that is fair game. I guess somebody could feel like when they watch that that uh, uh, he would be a bigger part of it. But it was his first role. I mean, I remember Vin, uh, Barry telling me um, that he had to fight for um, the, the, the money and the release and the publicity. And he had to tell the powers of be this movie has big stars in it. And uh, I know it sounds really dated to say we're making a Kerry Russell reference, but I think he said more people know Mick Foley than Kerry Russell. And then he was met with almost disdain for that. But by the time it came out, The Rock was, you know, a huge star. We're not even approaching the magnitude he's at now. But I think, uh, you you know, you uh, play with the hand you're dealt. And that was uh, I'm moving now from cooking references to card play references. This is like an ace, and uh, you might as well play it. But I think that's fair. I think that's fair. If, if yeah, I will. I will concede that that's a valid point. Of course, Vince is really upset because he wanted to be a part of it. He's complaining that he had offered triple what the costs of the movie were to buy financial interest in it, but was turned down. Whereas Blaustein felt like you can't really be a subject of a documentary and a financial partner. That's not really the way it works. And after saying he didn't care if people saw it or not and calling it boring and a snooze fest, he proceeds to say that people who go to the movie are going to be disappointed that the movie is a lie. It lacks entertainment value and that lion's gates is actually hoodwinking the fans with their advertising because they're teasing. It's a real movie when really it's a documentary. And he complains that Foley's not even making any money on this thing. Uh, it's, he's doing all he can here to stay out front. And I understand that this is just an absolute shitstorm. And then in the middle of all this, 
this is when you're coming back for WrestleMania. So you're the top, one of the top guys going to be, you know, flirting with those main events in big roles. And you're also in a quote unquote expose. This is, this had to be a, a tough time for you and Vince. I mean, it's sort of like it's what's done is done, but less than ideal circumstance at this point in your career. Yeah. You know, it's funny you say that because on one hand it was, but I think I said, that, you know, earlier at a certain point that we just agreed to disagree because Man, it was still the phone call I received, uh, and I'm thinking, man, I don't know why this just came to me. I'm thinking I received the call, um, or that I ended up calling Jr. back from my parents' house. At that time, uh, you see the, the door right there, and this is when people still had the phone, they had the long cord. I believe I stepped outside and was talking like the way you would, you know, with your friends or I, I didn't really have a girlfriend in high school, but if a girl happened to call, you know, you'd walk outside and you'd talk on the phone. People of the new generation have no idea what I'm talking about, but I think it was right there on the porch where on the stoop where I, you know, Jr. said, we got some plans for you for WrestleMania. And I was thinking I was going to like host a panel or something along those lines. And then, when he brought up the main event at Mania, I was just floored. I said, like, I just retired six weeks ago. I know this is not a, a, an episode about that um, that pay-per-view, but it just shows you that even if I was, you know, butting heads with Vince about the movie, like, he was still putting me in the main event of his biggest show of the year. And at that point, every WrestleMania was the biggest WrestleMania, so it was the biggest show in WWE history at that point, as every wrestling, I think most, many WrestleManias, not every, uh, but most WrestleManias, especially that era, were just getting bigger and, and, and uh, better and more elaborate. So I think all of those charges, though, are false. I mean, documentaries are real movies. I, I'm going to just, uh, like, if you're not of that belief, I don't know how I can make you believe that. But I'm a, I'm a documentary fanatic. Um, it is a real movie. Um, I don't think we were hoodwinking anybody. Yeah, I believe in their hearts, the people that were told to say this knew that it was at best hazy and that they didn't believe 100%. Uh, but I would say all of those things are untrue. Let's talk about uh, what's next here, because they do allow one piece of media, but it's one you have to call and ask permission for. Uh, it's coming out that, Larry King is going to have Barry Blaustein on and WCW wrestlers, Hulk Hogan, Roddy Piper, and Ric Flair. None of those folks are in the movie right. and you're friends with Barry. You know, this is coming. And you wrote in your book that you called Vince and shared your belief that if we weren't careful, this could turn into a one hour indictment of the world wrestling federation. You persuade him. And eventually and Vince blesses. He it. said, Mick, I don't care. And I said, but I do. I just want to. I just want to make sure people know that's what I said. In case you go there. Well, yeah, that's what I wanted to ask. How did he change course? Where you can't go promote it, you can't make media about it. You're concerned this could go negatively. He says he doesn't care. You say you do. He blesses it. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, he knew it was important to me. I mean, that was yeah. It was, I give him, like I said, I give him a lot of credit for giving me that latitude because he knew that he felt differently. He knew I felt strongly about it. Uh, you know, Vince and I don't agree on a lot of things in the real world or in wrestling, but he always respected 
my right to tell that. Like he didn't make it easy on me. And with the with the Larry King thing, he could have said no, and that would have been the final word. But I not only was on it, but I was there in person in studio. It was important to me. I loved the company, and I, I did not think to. Add. I did not think Beyond the Mat was an indictment on pro wrestling. I think it was. Uh, there were some details in there that were 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 were, were tough to digest, and it made you think. And but I was a grown man who made decisions that may not have been the best decisions to make. But you know that life is full of mistakes and regrets, and and I think that's portrayed honestly in the movie. After you make the appearance, Jim Ross called you and asked how it went. And allegedly you said something like it would have been a hell of a lot worse. Had it not been there. What do you remember about your experience on Larry King? It would have been a lot worse. Uh, I mean, you know, you know, Larry was, um, he was pretty taken with the Hulkster. (laughs) Like Larry, like he, I know it's it's tough, difficult. You have to jump from world leaders to pro wrestlers, but I didn't feel like he had a real knowledge of what we did. Yeah, and uh, man, it's tough when how many guys were on the opposite were in the WCW side four or five? Yeah, there were three and, there. Yeah, it's just me, and I think it was like yeah, like holding, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> holding off an offensive. Uh, and that it would have been worse if I wasn't on it. I didn't think it was great, but uh, I think it would have been a lot worse if I wasn't there on behalf of the company. It's interesting that this movie became the cult classic that it did. did. Would you have ever suspected that wrestling fans would have gravitated to it the way they did? Or did you kind of know, hey, we're doing something pretty special here? Well, I think it had the chance. I mean, yeah, same thing with a match. You know, you put your best uh, effort forward and it's up to the people who see it to decide whether it's a classic or not. Um, and I think uh, wrestling fans have, uh, demonstrated over the years that it, uh, it is a classic, you know, whether it's a, a cult classic or not, I think it's still a classic and that you can show it. I think it stands the test of time. You can show it, uh, uh, to, uh, a fan or a non-fan alike, and it's going to have an impact. And I think, Un, un, despite what WWE may have said at the time, that it is a real story. It's depicted uh, with realism, and I think it, it stands up just fine. All in all, you're pleased with the movie? Yeah. Yeah, I'm very pleased with it and my role in it. Like, I, I really uh, i am so glad that I was part of it, and uh, I think Terry Funk is as well. Terry felt the same way I did, that it was, uh, you know, at the time, it was going to be like the defining statement is of his career and i'm really uh i'm really glad that i was in it i want to ask about your relationship with vince we know it's had its ups and downs at this point it feels like it's been mostly positive was this maybe the start of some of those problems do you think no no the real problems i would say the when things the negative started overcoming the positives it didn't happen until uh of all things <laughs> uh, my, I, I unveiled my desire to publish a novel without WWE. Yeah. And that's when things, and that's crazy that that happened. I think, uh, that was 2001 and it was like night and day. Uh, the New York times, uh, sent, uh, a really respected, uh, a journalist 
over to, to my house and I mentioned that I was considering writing a novel. And uh, the next day, Judith Regan made an offer sight unseen. And I didn't end up taking Judith's author, which would, offer would have, which would have been the highest offer sight unseen. And instead, I said I didn't feel comfortable taking an offer for something I hadn't done and didn't know if I could do. And then when the book didn't turn out to be what Judith wanted it to be, which was kind of like a thinly veiled, you know, uh, wrestling expose, uh, that she wasn't as interested. She was still interested, but not as interested. Um, but as soon as that was published and Judith made that offer to me and I spoke to WWE, everything seemed to take a turn for the worse immediately after that. And looking back on it, it's crazy that something as like non-consequential in the bigger, you know, in the bigger picture, like who cares that I would have written a novel that had you know really nothing to do with WWE, but had everything with me wanting to do something on my own without their, you know, without their imprint on it. And uh, that changed everything. It, changed, it just, it really changed the relationship and things got better in 2003, but they were pretty rough there for about a year and a half. Let's do some questions. Then we'll wrap this one up. Uh, Adam Leeson yep. wants to know what was the difficult thing about having cameras follow you around, Mick? Hold on a second. I'm going to do something. I don't think it's been done in podcast history. Just uh, hold on. This is okay. revolutionary. Just a second. I'll be right there, comrade. Here we are getting a live look inside the, the Foley home, the homestead where Mick Foley grew up, that very chalkboard. You have earned that uh, name, the Podfather, right? Well, I don't know about that. Well, you are. You recognize that you are referred to as a podcast. I, yes. Pod. Yes, I have been. Yes. Has anyone in your long, illustrious <laughs> run as the Podfather eaten a pickle on camera? No. Some- oh, man. This is podcast history. This is- <laughs> We're going to put this on uh, YouTube and OnlyFans. Mick Foley eating a pickle Sorry. here. It's just delicious. What kind of pickle is it? Is, are they a sponsor this week? Can they be next week? I don't know, but it could be kosher dill. My daughter filmed me sleep eating several years ago. Really? We need to contact her, see if she still has the footage, in which I drank an entire jar of pickle juice. And I'm going to do uh, – let me see if I get there. We're going to see some. Are you familiar, Mick, as you chug the pickle juice with the, the now infamous – uh, Kevin Nash ravioli shoot interview. No, what happened there? He did a shoot interview about a decade ago where he just ate a bowl of ravioli during the interview. And then about seven years ago, while we were discussing uh, headlock on hunger, Rick okay. Flair ate yeah. kimchi and then alternated the microphone and Kim and, and kimchi as we talked about headlock on hunger. And now this is the third interview moment in wrestling history where there's food and it's a pickle of all the things Mick Foley is going to get over the most random stuff, socks, puppets, pickle juice. I'll feel a whole lot better about the situation. If I can down the rest of the pickle juice on camera, let's do it. Let's do it. Give me a drum roll there. If you can, I don't have a drum roll, but I got this Foley, Foley, Foley. Look at him. Chug, 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 chug. This is real life. Boys and girls. Chug, chug. Chuck, Chuck, you heard about the boys who used to do this with Jack Daniels, not Mick Foley. He does it with pickle juice, boys and girls. There it is. 
a pickle burp too. <laughs> just <laughs> Ooh, that was good. Nick, are you pregnant? Is that what we're doing here? Is this <laughs> Am I pregnant? <laughs> we're not an inordinate amount of weight. what's the most difficult thing about having the cameras follow you make besides eating pickles on camera well you know man well it was it was situational right in that the relationship in the with barry and the uh the crew you know went on for two years or so but it was sporadic whereas doing Holy Foley, basically the cameras are on you 16 hours a day. I understand when the guys did Legend House, it was 24 hours a day, which to me is, and even Wife Swap was 16 hours a day. They did let you sleep on your own. That's a lot more difficult to deal with uh, than, than the filming of the documentary. So they're with me for days at a time, you know, at certain aspects, and they were, were there for uh, you know, days um, surrounding the I Quit match with The Rock, but then I might not see them for a few months. And like I said, there's a scene where Noel and Dewey are clearly, you know, younger uh, in, in 96 or early 97 than they were when this match rolled around uh, January of 99. Here's one from the wrestling savant. Has Barry Blaustein ever approached Mick about doing a follow-up on the movie? Was that ever discussed? Some sort of a follow-up with Barry? No, I think Barry feels really good about, you know, how the movie was received. We did a 10-year update where Jesse and I provided some commentary. Um, and don't forget, Jesse Ventura being in that movie in 99, when he was most one of the most recognizable faces in the country, was really was really a big deal. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I can talk to Barry, you know, after uh, this airs, and we'll get his take on it. And uh, I'll ask him afterwards if he ever thought about doing a follow-up. But my guess is no, that he did not. You know, he's really happy with what he's doing. He's uh, teaching, you know, um, uh, screenwriting. And he won an Emmy for the writing he did for Eddie Murphy's Return to Saturday Night Live. And he co-wrote the uh, Coming to America sequel, which did really well. And uh, he's, he's, he's doing pretty good. I want to ask about um, New Jack. Rick Guzman wants to know, what's your favorite memory of New Jack? Man, I did not know New Jack that well. You know, it's crazy. I saw, you know, knew him for years. Always hello. Always friendly. I didn't, I didn't, did not know New Jack. I guess my favorite memory is someone dropping the n-word on him and attempting to run away at the hotel not realizing it was a circular hotel oh lord and he basically ran right into new jack and paid a price for his choice of words so that's <laughs> my, my favorite new jack story that's like out of a cartoon that's fantastic yes <laughs> yeah uh, running away not realizing this building goes in a circle and facing the consequences Nav Deep has a great question. Uh, we've uh, we've touched on this before, but WrestleFest '97 is featured in the movie. Of course, it's the famous Dennis Stamp scene. It's the famed Terry Funk's retirement match in Amarillo. Did you actually believe here in 1997 that Terry was serious about retiring? It was his last match in Amarillo, and I don't think he had another match in Amarillo. So it was specific <laughs> to that city. 
I should go around having a farewell in every city in America. If and, you uh, if you dare mention that to Ric Flair, I will stop speaking to you. <laughs> there cannot but, you know, we talked about this event. I, I know I was surprised to see how little uh, uh, Dave thought of the match I had with Sabu, which I knew it didn't stick out in my mind as being a classic because I don't remember much about it. And you do tend to remember the things that went either really well or really poorly. But at no time did I think it was a really bad match or else it would have really bothered me. Um, but that was a really good night. I remember hanging out afterwards and Shane Douglas and I were eating a you know, late night dinner and reminiscing. And we really felt good about what had gone down that day at the show. Last one. This is from Zach. Uh, Mick, what was the most difficult thing to talk about on that documentary? Does one thing stand out as being most difficult? The most difficult part was just seeing my children's reaction. Yeah. So that was the most difficult. I mean, one of the regrets I have is I chose to wear a long sleeve work work shirt with a pair of shorts as my kids drove their bicycles. You know, that was a poor fashion choice. And I've had to live with the consequences of that for 23 years. (laughs) But I uh, I think, though, you know, yeah, I love I love the movie. I think it was really good reflection of uh, where I was and I'm just, I'm going to stand by it. Proud of it. Always have been and always will be. I'm proud of uh, our next episode. We haven't even recorded it yet, but I can't wait to talk to you about it. We're talking in your house, buried alive, man. What an interesting match concept from October of 1996. That's coming your way next week. In the meantime, though, you get all of our shows early and ad-free over at adfreeshows.com, including my recent conversation with Bill After, where he tells some never-before-told stories about Hulk Hogan and even Vince McMahon. We just sat down with famed belt maker Dave Milliken on the one-year anniversary of Reggie Park's passing uh, to talk about the making and the design of the WCW world title. Eric Bischoff just sat face-to-face with Raven this week after the first time in a long time. That's over at adfreeshows.com. Tony Schiavone did a live Q&A. We got Jake Roberts watching Halloween Havoc 92. Lots of fun bonus content at adfreeshows.com. And, of course, you get all these shows early, including next week, Mick. We want to know the magic of the Buried Alive match. And for years, Bruce has not shared anything. I can't oh, wait. man. I've alluded to it. I don't think I've ever. Uh, I'm going to have to do some serious soul searching. As you search, let me mention, it's on NBC. What's that? They did an expose, a magic expose, not wrestling, but they did a buried alive expose on NBC years ago where I think it's kind of out there, but for whatever reason, it's one of those things people don't talk about. And maybe you're going to be as proud to talk about it next week as you are of that pickle juice. Bravo. You showed that pickle juice. He was boss. I'm going to have to have a, another interesting beverage of choice uh, on the next show. Only thing I'm going to demand is that when we talk about and in your house, we have to segue in the song, at least the chorus of the song. Every time, yeah. I think we can do it right now. <laughs> can we do it? Yeah. Well, in the magic of post-production, we're going to have that song close us out, getting us ready for in your house next week because everybody knows nobody. Came, came through, through bigger when it mattered less than Mr. In Your House. The hard thing. Thanks, color. Conrad. This was a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. Hope it doesn't uh, hurt any feelings. And again, I, I 
I just want to echo what I said. It's crowded field out there. That was one of my concerns when we started doing this podcast. Is man, aren't there enough out there already? And uh, and you said people end up making choices about what they want to listen to, watch, and uh, so for every one of you who's decided that this is uh, even whether it's a one-time deal or part of your weekly um, experience, we really appreciate having you along. Really appreciate it, boys and girls. Hit subscribe button if you uh, enjoy it. Leave us a five-star review if you think we've earned it. And tell your friends about your favorite new podcast each and every Friday. Foley is pod. Hold on. I'm going to show you the back of this shirt. Let's do it. My goodness. Look at that. Boys and girls, if you want to see more of this shirt, you can request it. This is just a PSA on Cameo. Tell everybody where they can go, Mick. I forgot. We didn't even plug it. We didn't. We're oh, out yeah. of our source we're today. Cameo.com slash Mick Foley. I will do my best to make your day. Yeah, request pickle juice. We'll see you next week. <laughs> Have a nice day.